page three, and it says 57, nabbed in fantastic vice rate. And you look at this, and you see these guys being hurried into the wagon. They got their black glasses on, and they're holding up copies of the Paris Quarterly, you know. And you feel cheated. I missed another one. I missed another party. Well, this is a problem that all of us have to face. We as Americans, we as Americans are a very special breed of cat. Oh, yeah, we really are. And, and on a Saturday night, as we sit here quietly eating our cheeseburgers, and you can hear, if you listen carefully, listener out there, you'll hear the sound of girdles creaking. It's all part of life in America. Out there right now at this minute. Let's, let's, let's pause before we get started. Let's give them a moment of simple commiseration. Out there in the darkness right now, there are 400 million Americans heading along the turnpikes on a Saturday night, aiming at debauchery. They're heading for the Howard Johnson. <laughs> This is an American's idea of really going all the way. As a matter of fact, out in Indiana, I can tell you on a Saturday night, they can measure what kind of a Saturday night it is by how many interchanges you ride over on the, on the turnpike. If you're really going out, it's a three interchange night. You just drive on the turnpike. You know, turnpike driving has become an end in itself. It's not where you go that matters. In fact, right now on the New Jersey Turnpike, you can buy little beanies that say souvenir of Interchange 12. <laughs> With a propeller, you know. Or you can get a little hat that says souvenir of Route 9. I've been there. And so now, at this moment, let us pay simple homage to those pilgrims in search of passion who right now are heading for the drive-ins of the world who are heading for real life as seen on a wide screen with their little rusty horses on the side of their on the side of their mustangs how about that little rusty horse i kind of like him if you ever you know one time i got an mgc a real little low car and if you ever look at the bottom of cars as you're whistling along the turnpike you can see dreams personified I remember one time I'm driving along the turnpike, see this little old car, and all of a sudden this monster pulls up next to me. And we're both going neck and neck. It's on the Pennsylvania Turnpike. And on the side it says Oldsmobile Jet Star Stream Super 88. And it's rusty. And I can see it sort of half hanging off. And I'm riding along there and I'm saying to myself, is this the dream? Is this as far as it goes? Well, maybe it's because in America we live a special life. And I just got back from the Negev Desert. Are you interested? <laughs> All right. You are now going to see the other shepherd. Are you prepared? Now, wait a minute, honey. You just sit there and be quiet and object while I give you the cue. This... Shut up, will you? Or leave. Look at this. Now, wait a minute. Look at that. Look at that. All right. Can you imagine walking into your boss's office 
Monday morning like this. You arrive, you can see it gives you a very different aspect. You notice how tall you walk. Yeah. Now, if you wanna if you wanna prepare for sandstorms, here's the way this oh by the way, look at this. Can you imagine walking into a union negotiation? <laughs> you know, you just sort of carry it in. You don't say anything about it. You just open it up and pare your nails with it. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm down. I'm down in the heart of the. I'm down in the heart of the the Arab, the Bedouin Bazaar, in the middle of Nazareth, and it's a long, narrow, twisting, involved street. It's about six feet across. See? And as you go step by step, you get deeper and deeper into another world. And you get further and further away from America. And each step, the smells get more subtle. Oh, yeah, I'll tell you, there's stuff you wouldn't believe that smells, friend. Oh, yeah, and, there, and when you get a fantastic montage of these smells and these aromas, it does something to your soul. And I go into this Arab Bazaar, see this little tiny shop. And, you know, I'm a typical American. There's a certain point when you think you're hip, and then all of a sudden you encounter something totally alien. And all your hipness departs. And I walk into this place, see. And here is this Arab sheik. He's got this tarbush on. They wear it like this. It's worn, thrown around this way, see. And I walk in. And he says, ah, you are the American. I say, Yeah. <laughs> You know, yeah, what can you say, you know? And he says, come into my shop. Let us sit down and speak of what perhaps you would like to take home to America as a little gift. And so we sat down, and immediately he brought out this Turkish coffee. And we sat at this tiny inlaid table. Me looking at him, him looking at me. And then he said... What was it you desired to take home as a souvenir? And there was a slight flicker of his shoulder. And I saw a figure behind in the darkness appear from behind the beaded screens. It was this fantastic alabaster dream. What a chick. Woo! And she had these almond eyes. And she just appeared for an instant and then disappeared. His eyebrow flickered just slightly, this little flick. He says, is there anything you see? <laughs> I says, well, uh, <laughs> he says, that is exactly what I thought. Now let us speak. What was it you want? And I could see by a flick of his left hand that it was expected of me to discuss water pipes, which were over here all piled up marked for tourists only. And I said, uh, how about a water pipe? And he says, ah, I have superb water pipes. I have many water pipes. This one was made during the reign of the Turks. And this goes back to the Byzantine Empire. And I have others. I said, I'm interested in others. <laughs> 
He says, ah, I see you are a man of taste and discretion. And behind us, I could hear this oriental, this Arabic music begin to play. I could hear the sound of those pipes. And boy, I could feel my blood boiling. And he says, I can arrange to have whatever you wish sent to you duty free. I says, duty free? Duty free. I says, well. <laughs> and we settled back for a long moment like that. And then there was a sudden moment, a sudden instant. And once again, I see this alabaster form. This time, it's another alabaster form. He says, I have much in stock. <laughs> Little did I realize at that moment that I had engaged myself in a subtle bargaining, a subtle but very, very well-established pattern, I was about to buy, gentlemen, the ultimate souvenir. <laughs> haven't you, as an American, uh, as a traveler, haven't you wanted someday to bring back the one thing that said it? Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and you get it back home and it just turns out to be a rotten little vase. You know, just a crummy vase and you see him up and down 42nd Street. And you've logged it back in your bag 6,000 miles and that turns out to be a rotten little vase. And you take pictures. We all have the desire to bring back the ultimate. While I am sitting with this Arab sheikh and he says to me, he says, of course you realize that these things take time. I said, how much? He says, it depends, it depends on the sort of negotiation that you wish to enter into. Do you wish to pay cash or do you wish to charge it? Little did I realize how spectacularly successful my diner's club card could be. You'll be surprised at the things that you can charge on your diner's club card, friends. You'd be surprised. I've been in places that I expected any minute now to hear the heavy tread of the law, and above it it says carte blanche cards on it. Well, I am sitting with this guy for 15 minutes, and we are talking back and forth with this subtle innuendo of two old experienced men of the world. Until finally he says, Zabil is complete. It was a pleasure to do business with you. Her name is Fatima. <laughs> of course, you can call her anything you care. <laughs> she prefers Fatima. And I said, Fatima, Fatima. Oh boy, wouldn't they love to see Fatima in Hammond, Indiana? <laughs> yes, Fatima. Little did I realize that I could get her not only duty-free, but I could get her disguised as a lamp. <laughs> That's how she's coming in. And it was that, it was through a long, involved, subtle negotiation like that that I finally achieved the ultimate. I don't know how long the law is going to let me get by with it. 
I don't know, but I've had that moment of fantastic success. I'm waiting now for the call from the American Express Company. I wonder how she'll be wrapped. I wonder what you say, you know, the first moment. Come, Fatima. Come. And a, a true slave. It was that way, and it was, it was the most fun I've ever had. I don't think anybody has ever bought a Doberman Pinscher and had as much fun as I had. You didn't know they sold dogs in the Arab Bazaar, did you? Well, I've made my peace, and I'm going to continue to live with it. You know, it's a funny thing about, about people, about when you travel out and you learn about your land, you know. I am in the middle of this, this fantastic scene in a, in a town north of Tel Aviv. This is another time when you discover yourself. And it's a low mud hut. And I've been taken in by this guy who says, you really want to see how the native world lives? I said, yeah. And so we go into this place. It's all lit with purple lights. And I can see people lounging on the floor. And there's guys wearing tarbushes. You ought to see an Arab when he's in his full regalia. They wear shades. You ought to see a, an Arab in his shades. <laughs> that is an Arab in full heat. <laughs> Two o'clock in the morning, here they are. They're lining up. They're all in this dark place. And I can see these shades. And I can hear the tinkle of little bells somewhere in the distance. And I can smell some subtle aromas, which even by just smelling them, I know they're illegal. <laughs> you know, I know that's a bad scene, see? And I step over these bodies. I'm in this dark den of iniquity in the Middle East. We've all, we've all vibrated to that. And out of the darkness comes this man who runs this thing, and he says to me, What is your pleasure? What is your pleasure? What are you going to do when somebody asks you that in the middle of a, what appears to be a den of decadence, of decadence beyond measure? He says, what is your pleasure? And the only thing I could think of is, you got any Cokes? <laughs> it's terrible being an American. <laughs> I'm telling you, we're very uncreative sinners, you know? So... <laughs> In the middle of all that, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, holy smokes. I can remember my mother. I'm a little kid, see. Well, this is one of the, one of the, one of the remembrances, I think, that, that clouds are thinking about places like that. I can remember my mother as a little kid. She's got this fantastic hang-up. And what is it on? It's on Gary Cooper. And why is it on Gary Cooper? I can remember going to this movie with her. She used to take me every afternoon to see this same picture. We followed it all around the, the Midwest. Every afternoon she's off, she'd take me. And it was a picture with Gary Cooper in the French Foreign Legion. <laughs> the French, what was the name of that picture? Did any of you ever see that picture? Was that Paul Jest? Gary Cooper had this big hat, you know, with the thing hanging down the back. And my mother had this idea in her head that if she could only get to the desert, <laughs> Gary Cooper would grab her. 
Either that, or if she could get to the desert, Rudolph Valentino would grab her. My mother had an idea that she could see herself being carried away on a horse, you know? Off into the desert to this tent made out of camel hair, see? And you know, she used to stand over... I remember she used to stand over the sink after one of those afternoons with Gary Cooper in the French Foreign Legion, and she's wearing her rump-sprung bathrobe. <laughs> well, she's got an orange bathrobe. She called the Chinese red. And it was an orange rump-sprung chenille bathrobe. And I can remember her standing over the sink, see, and it had dried egg on the lapels. And she's got her Brillo pad in her hand. My mother was the only mother I knew who slept with her Brillo pad. <laughs> I'm telling you, she kept it in a shoulder holster, you know? <laughs> hey, I can remember her really, seriously, I can remember her standing over the sink. It's, she's had a big afternoon in the French Foreign Legion. And the sand is still coming down out of... It's, it's coming down out of her curlers, you know? My mother had her... <laughs> I don't know what he's been up to, but... <laughs> I'll tell you, my mother had her hair up in curlers for 26 years. You see, she figured that when something really big came along, she'd take it down. <laughs> and right now, tonight, my mother is sitting up in curlers. It has not happened. And so I can remember her, seriously, I can remember her standing over the sink, you know. Her rump-sprung bathrobe on. And she's got the Brillo pad. And we had one of these sinks, you know. We had a sink that ad-libbed. Oh, yeah, yeah, we had, we had a sink, you know, the sink. At, at crucial moments in family arguments, which were always held in the kitchen... You know, these long, pregnant silences. Yeah, my old man is sitting there in his underwear. My mother is opposite him. My kid brother is under the table whimpering. And I'm sitting there eating the red cabbage, see? And the old man is bugged about something. His underwear is open. There was these pause. There'd be a long, pregnant pause. And all of a sudden, the sink would go... It really kills the point of anything that happens. You know, my old man has just made a big point, and that's all I've got to say about it. And he's sitting there for a minute saying, let that sink in, you know. When the sink goes, oh. And it would, it would sort of throw up, you know. See, our sink somehow was connected with Bruner's sink next door. And the Bruners lived like pigs. And all of a sudden, the sink would go, oh. And up would come a dead fish, you know. Or an apple core, some rotten thing. And my mother would look over at the sink. And you could see, you know, it's funny, you know, those little vignettes, you could see across the driveway, you could see another little pane of light. It was the next house where Mrs. Bruner is bending over her sink. And she has just thrown the apple core in her sink. 
and it's now laying in the middle of our linoleum. And my mother would jump up and she'd say, oh yeah, and she'd stop stuff in our sink, pour the water in it, and, this, and the sink would suck things in, you know? They'd go, ah, and it would all disappear. And then you'd see Mrs. Bruner. Oh, life, I'll tell you, man. And I remember my mother, you know, those moments after long afternoons with Gary Cooper. I don't know whether people in showbiz know how much they affect all the rest of them out there. We call them the audience, but they aren't really. They're just individual little jots, little tiny kind of bundles of desire and dreams, disappointment, buggedness, passions. There's no such thing as an audience. And here's my mother. I can remember these nights. She's bent over. She's got a rump-sprung bathrobe on. And, and still, you know, it's funny. You know how after you've gone to a movie, how it sticks with you for about two hours? You know that terrible feeling of after the thing, you know, the, you see the end come on and Dmitry Tiomkin's music rises? It goes, bum, 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 bum. And you see Tony Perkins. That fantastic figure of a man. <laughs> He's the only guy I knew who has padding on his padding, you know. And you see Tony Perkins striding off the screen nine feet tall, and he's got Audrey Hepburn in his arms. And you see him going up into the mountains. And you sit there for a second. And two and a half minutes later, you're out on the street. <laughs> you know, you're back out here where real life is. You're knee-deep in cigar butts. Have you noticed that, that Tony Perkins never seems to have trouble kicking beer cans out of his way? You know, real life, and, and guys have written stuff, four-letter words all over the walls. You know, that would be a great moment in a movie. <laughs> now that I think about it. Let's take somebody really ethereal. Let's say uh, Ingrid Bergman. Or Debbie Reynolds. That's even better. No, Doris Day. <laughs> I can see Doris Day entering the subway. <laughs> and she's with James Garner. You know, have you ever had the feeling he's carved out of soap? You know, 99 and 44, 100% pure. He's carved out of a bar of Life Boy, and she's carved out of a bar of Ivory. And can you see these two coming into the subway? Passing one of the signs you pass every night. Real quick, like, you know. Well, I'll tell you, I can see my mother. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, have, I have a sense of, of responsibility to the audience because I can see my mother, see. We have seen Gary Cooper. And you know how it is in the Foreign Legion. Oh, they play hard and fast. These are men who live hard and die bravely. These are men who stand on the parapet. I remember that scene. Do you remember that fantastic scene where one by one they're getting picked off? These guys in the French Foreign Legion and the Toregs are going up and down the hills. They're picking them off one after the other. And wasn't it Victor McLaughlin that was piling up the dead bodies to look like they're still fighting? Until finally there's only two of them left, you know? Holy smokes! Boy! Well, my mother has had a full afternoon of that, see. You can see the sand trickling out of her, out of her curlers, you know. 
And she's wearing her rump-sprung bathrobe like a tarboosh. And you know, she's in Purda. You know, oh yeah, have you ever seen how Purda is? Yo, you see these chicks walking around, you know, and it's like this. Oh, you'd be surprised what that does. Yeah, and she's standing there, you know, she's got her bathrobe up like that. And she's working over the sink, and she gets very silent. People who get involved in these things get very silent afterwards. And she's silent, see? And I'm sitting over there by the, by the table. I'm a kid, you know, and I got my meatloaf. I got my red cabbage. You know, and I got my Ovaltine. Oh, by the way, <laughs> how many of you ever listened to Tom X? Yeah, and his Ralston Rangers. I'll never forget wanting one whole year a box of Ralston because I came from an oatmeal family. You know, Ralston was always advertised as having a nut brown goodness with a nutty flavor that Tom and Tony, his horse, both eat every morning. Yeah, and Jane and Jimmy, too, and the old Wrangler every morning. And then I remember getting my first bowl of cream of wheat, my first bowl of Ralston, and it tastes like jazzed-up oatmeal. That, that slow settling in of, of, I suppose you can call it, ah, what is the word? Vague knowledge that it's all not what it seems to be. And my mother, of course, is still, I think the women are the great romantics. That's why men have so much trouble with them. You know, they, they marry images, not men. And here she is, bent over the sink seat. And once in a while, the sink goes, ah. And she sort of pushes it down. She's pretending it's a camel. <laughs> you know, that makes it better, see? So she's hanging over this thing, and she's very silent. I'm a kid, and I'm eating. And my kid brother's eating. And there's that kind of, you know, that nice, nobody's paying any attention to anybody else feeling in the family kitchen. I'm eating away. My brother's eating away. And by the way, I had the kind of brother who didn't eat. He'd go through periods when he refused to eat completely. Absolutely. Just would sit. And it got to the point, I remember, where my old man used to say, you won't eat, huh? And he'd grab him by the back of the neck. He'd say, give me this screwdriver. He'd pry his mouth open. And he used his kerosene funnel on him. I can remember him pouring the, pouring the red cabbage down the funnel and putting it down. The kid brother's eyeballs bugging. <laughs> he learned to eat, I'll tell you. He got so he was mainlining mashed potatoes. <laughs> so, you know, you live in this kind of world, and, and, and it's one of those long afternoons. We've seen, we've seen Gary Cooper, or my mother is still riding those fantastic long hills of the dunes, when all of a sudden, the back door slams open and there's the old man coming in. You know, our neighborhood Toreg, our Bedouin. He comes pouring in. He says, I'm home. And he starts taking off his clothes. And my mother just turns around. She says, yeah. You know, I said, what do you mean, yeah? She says, yeah, I see. You're home. I see. And then he turns around and he says, What have you been doing? Have you been at them damn movies again? And she says, None of your business. And then I hear him stamping off into the living room. 
And he said, if I ever catch that Gary Cooper, I'll hit him in the mouth. He don't even know how to ride a horse. And my mother says, that's what you think. He said, well, I bet he can't play pool. My mother says, that's all you can do. And then there's silence. And then I hear the sink go, ah. And there is the vignette of what showbiz does to the living, breathing protoplasm of the audience. It splits them. We'll be back in five minutes. Let's hear it. Come on. This is WOR Radio, your station for news. Palisades has the rides, Palisades has the fun. Come on over. Shows and dancing are free, so the parking's so gee. Come on over. Palisades from coast to coast, where a dime buys the most. Palisades amusement park swings all day and after dark. Ride the coaster, get cool in the waves, in the pool you'll have fun. So come on over. Swim in the world's largest outdoor saltwater pool at Palisades. Come on over. Tuesdays and Thursdays are bargain days. Many rides, five and ten cents. There are over 190 thrilling rides and attractions, plenty of free parking, plus $3,500 in merchandise given away free every day. Free big shows tomorrow afternoon. See the four tops, the toys, bittersweet, the favorites, all in person at Palisades. WOR, FM, New York. Want to buy a night? At the open-air New York Arts and Antiques Flea Market, tomorrow and every Sunday, 1 to 7, 25th Street and 6th Avenue, admission 75 cents. At the time signal, 11 o'clock, Ed Pettit in the news. Good evening, everyone. Here is the late hour news. Ed Pettit reporting. The first family came to New York City tonight to spark several fundraising affairs. One... There were pickets near the Waldorf protesting the court-martial of a Negro soldier who refused to fight once he got to Vietnam. Mr. Johnson, speaking informally at the Americana, said he'll continue the campaign for greater civil rights. He said the U.S. is fighting in Vietnam not only for itself, but for a better life for the Vietnamese. He said this nation has the will, the creativity, and the stamina to solve its many problems. Mr. Johnson is due to head back to Washington about midnight tonight. Defense Secretary Robert McNamara says another 18,000 troops will soon see service in Vietnam. This will raise our strength there to 285,000. McNamara declined comments on reports that the American buildup will reach 400,000 by the end of this year. U.S. troops took the offensive 300 miles north of Saigon today against a stubborn force of North Vietnamese regulars who have lost more than 700 men in recent days. Here at home, the march begun last weekend by James Meredith ended for the night in the Mississippi town of Pope, about 149 miles still between the marchers and their goal of Jackson. During today's trek, march leaders got 53 Negroes to register as voters this fact was used to answer state NAACP, uh, NAACP official Charles Evers, who criticized spending money on the march and the campouts when it might, he said, be spent more directly in getting Negroes to register. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. rejoined the marchers today. Two gunmen pulled a quarter-million-dollar jewel robbery in Washington during the day. As the pair were leaving, 
manager Edward Jackman of Livingston's fired five shots. The robbers answered with a single shot, and a 16-year-old boy was an accidental victim. Longtime stage and screen actor Wallace Ford died of a heart attack today at the age of 68. He last appeared in the film A Patch of Blue, which is currently showing. Doctors in Hollywood say Edward G. Robinson is still in serious condition after an auto accident and surgery, but continues to show improvement. Famous children of famous people fared rather badly today. Nine-year-old Carolyn Kennedy had to go on crutches after cutting her foot on a piece of coral, the first mishap on Mama's Hawaiian vacation. And Mayor Lindsay's youngest, John Jr., partially wrecked his dad's new Pontiac station wagon. The wagon, driven by a bodyguard, got pushed into a car ahead of it. The sudden stop threw the youngster against the dashboard. Fortunately, he wound up with nothing more damaging than a bloody nose. On a more serious note, we learned tonight of the death of Al Nielsen, for many years a member of the WOR family. An engineer who worked with virtually all the talent on this station before his retirement a few short years ago. He died of a heart attack near his home in Florida City. In baseball, in the American League, the Yankees beat Detroit 6-3. Tonight in the seventh inning, Minnesota 4, Chicago 1. Final score, Cleveland 6, Washington 4. And a final score, Boston 8, Baltimore 2. Kansas City against California is being played on the West Coast. In the National League, Pittsburgh down Atlanta 5-3, Los Angeles 4-2 over the Giants. The Mets took the first of two by beating Cincinnati 4-0. In the second game, in the eighth inning, it's Mets 2, Cincinnati nothing. Final, St. Louis 2, Philadelphia nothing. In the fifth inning, Chicago 5, Houston nothing. Number one, Narden's Bird won tonight's feature at Roosevelt Raceway. Daily double winners were number five, Marcus Pick, and number three, Fargo Hanover. Here now is the weather forecast for New York City and vicinity. Clear and cool tonight. Low 50 to 55 here in the city and the 40s in the suburbs. Tomorrow, sunny and mild. High 75 to 80. Fair and milder tomorrow night and again on Monday. Present Manhattan reading 59 degrees. Humidity 62%. Wind from the east at 8 miles an hour. The barometer reads 30.20 inches. It's rising and the THI stands at 59. That's the late hour news at Pettit reporting. Have a nice weekend. Now let's go back to Gene Shepherd at the Village Limelight. This is the. gentlemen of the listening audience, I wish to apologize for this ill-mannered display, which hardly befits a civilized man in the 20th century. And I, I, have, I have a sneaking feeling that if anything else happens like that, I'm just going to throw it right back to the studio. And we're going to put on Mary Martin tapes. All right? Okay. 
All right, now, are you all ready to go along with this now? Are you ready to behave? Yeah, you begin to like it, don't you? Yeah. See how close it is to the surface, you crumb? Yeah. I could just see this guy on Wednesday walking around with a sign that says, Peace. All right, let's give it a big hand there. Come on. <laughs> oh, what a gallimaufry, I'll tell you. Oh, yeah, somebody here, you know, it's a funny thing. I was in the Middle East. And, and you know, one thing that you can't get used to in the Middle East, if you come from the Middle West, <laughs> which is where I come from, is the fact that camels just walk around. Yeah, they're not in the zoo or anything. They're walking around. <laughs> and you know, you just can't get used to that. It hits you like a shock all the time. And a camel walks around. He's got to walk like this. And his head goes around. Yeah, you ought to see a camel. He still keeps walking when he's standing still, see? Yeah, and his behind goes like this. And then they walk. And they come over to the side of the road. And they look at you. <laughs> And you look at them, see? And then all of a sudden, when his head goes back, you better get going. Are you aware that a, a camel can spit with absolute accuracy for over 40 yards? And they can hit a moving target. Oh, yeah, you ought to see him chewing. He starts chewing real fast, see? And you start moving, and you just hear this kapatooey. And you get up between the shoulder blades. And I'll be doggone, they laugh, you know. And you hear this, ha, <laughs> ha, And he moves away. Oh, I'll tell you, there's no animal in the world like a camel. And ever since I was a kid, I have been deadly afraid of camels. Yeah, because, I, you know, each one of us has a hang-up on a certain animal. That we've had an experience with it. I'm not afraid of snakes, spiders, camels. Because when I was a kid, we had in the next block... Now, get this. Talk about being a lucky kid. Yeah, fantastic luck. One day, we had this ancient house that was kind of back in the willow trees. Big, vacant lot around it and weeds. They had a great big set of garages behind it. And it was empty for years. And it was called the Haunted House. You know the kind of house when the kids walk past? Oh, boy, that's a haunted house, see? Wow, see? And then every once in a while, you get up the guts to break in the basement window. You and Schwartz and Flick and Bruner, and we'd sneak around. And then we'd chicken out. <laughs> and it said, it said, for rent on it, see? Somehow a vacant, for rent, haunted house. I kind of like the idea of renting a haunted house. Can't you see it in the Times? <laughs> For rent. Haunted house. You see? 18 rooms and seven dungeons. <laughs> and here's, here's our haunted house, see? And this thing went along like that for years. And, you know, you get so... There's always a house in the neighborhood, if you live really in the country, that eventually you don't even pay any attention to. And the weeds grow up. And one day, about 45... It was in the summertime, see? About 45 fantastic big trucks pull up. 
and they're all lined up. Somebody is moving into the haunted house. And all the kids are out, you know, me and Flick and Bruner. And my mother, you see, she had this bit that whenever somebody moved into the house in the next block or across the street, she's peeking through the windows, through the curtain seat, to see what kind of furniture they got. You know, and you could see all these curtains all around the block. Mrs. Bruner peeking. You could see Mrs. Stryker across the street peeking, you know. And everybody's waiting. See, they're lamping this, this new neighbor. Here are trucks. There must have been 45 of them pulling up. And what do they say on the side? Thurston, the magician. Thurston, the magician, is moving into the neighborhood. I mean, that's like a kid living in a house, you know, and all of a sudden a big truck pulls up next door with 17,000 signs all over the side, and it says, Ed Sullivan is moving in. You know, or uh, Soupy Sales is moving in here, see? I mean, we couldn't believe it because Thurston the Magician, this was a, fa you know, a famous magician. And he was kind of mythical. And now he's moving in the next house down there in the empty vacant lot, see? And all the kids are watching this thing. And they're carrying great big trunks full of stuff in. Big trunks, one after the other, hour after hour. And they're filled, I'll tell you, you couldn't believe it. They're filled with things like hi-hats. They're filled with... Uh, rubber eggs disappearing can you imagine a neighbor that has 452 disappearing rabbits oh it's fantastic see and they're pulling all this stuff in and then a final big truck arrived now wait a minute tell me let me tell you what happened this truck arrived a great big long semi tractor trailer pulled up the last day they've been putting stuff in there for three days now down came the tailgate Three guys got in the back, and they come out leading a camel. I'm telling you, you ought to see what a camel looks like in Hessville, Indiana. I mean, this great big camel comes out. He comes out like this, and he stands there with the head going. Yeah, they work like that, see. They move back and forth, and me and Schwartz and Flick and Pruner are standing there, see. Our idea of a really big animal was this dog named Spot. <laughs> we had this dog named Spot that had these chromium teeth, see? He lived about two blocks away, and he was our idea of a really big animal. Here's this fantastic animal. He's just looking at us. And he's got these two little red beady eyes. And the instant he arrived in the neighborhood, he spotted the enemy. <laughs> Me and Schwartz and Flick and Bruner, see? We're standing there, and he's looking at us. And we didn't know this yet, you know, at that time. We're just sort of standing looking, because we didn't know anything about, you know, animals yet. And he's looking, and he's gone. And Flick says, hey, he's chewing. And Schwartz says, yeah, he is. Oh, hey, mister, what's he chewing? And here's this guy holding this thing, you know, it's a little halter. And the guy looks at him and says, you'll find out. <laughs> and Schwartz says, yeah. And just then the camel goes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the camel's looking at him and he goes, and he sort of leans back like that and his neck went forward like a, like a, like a snake. So he goes, <laughs> I'll tell you, he got all four of us at once. 
just we duck back. And with that, the guy leads him away, see, and he goes up the driveway. Now, all of you are used to seeing Oldsmobiles go up driveways. You know, Oldsmobiles and Chevys. You want to see how a camel looks going up a driveway. He's going, you know, just that plunk, plunk, plunk. Yeah, oh my, Joe, wow, it's fantastic. And we're chasing after him, and the guy says, watch out, this is a camel. At that time, I did not know the significance of the remark. Well, all right, they put him in the garage. Now, they, they fixed the garage so that they had a split door, you know, like they do with stables, so that he could stick his head out. And so every day while we're playing ball, out there on the other side of the lot, the camel's watching. He'd just lean back and forth, see, he'd watch those high pop-ups. Oh, yeah, camels are very intelligent, see, they get so they watch ball games and everything. After all, it's very dull being a camel. Have you ever thought of, of how, how little future there is in being a horse? There's just nowhere to go when you're a horse or a camel, see. You just watch it like that. Well, we took to doing this. Every day we'd come home from, from school, see. You know how it is when you're a kid? WBAI New York. We're listening to Gene Shepard live at the limelight from June 11th, 1966. Let's get back to it. Well, we took to doing this. Every day we'd come home from, from school, see. You know how it is when you're a kid? Everybody has his own little route that he takes home from school. You know, some guys go down the middle of the street. Yeah, there are certain kids who walk right down the middle of the street. I don't know. And then there's the conformist kid, you know, that walks down the sidewalk, see. And then there's the rest of us, the skulking kids, you know. Under porches, you know, over back fences, you know. We're climbing through guys' basements and that, working our way home, see. And I was one of those kids always down through the back alleys. Oh, there's a fantastic education available. Just by keeping your eyes open in alleys. Just keep your eyes on the ground, see. Oh, wow, wow, look at that. Hey, Lord, look at that, Schwartz. Oh, you know, you just keep going, you know. Well, we finally, we finally, you know, we got this whole thing where we knew these various animals. He had a whole menagerie. I, I remember one thing that he had I'll never forget is in the garage next to the camel, there was a tank, great big tank. And I used to crawl up to the back of the garage and look in, just peek into the gloom. It was an old garage that had been converted. And in the tank was something you just wouldn't believe. I'm serious. I'll never forget the sight of that. Floating in this dirty water with cigar butts and beer cans with these two eyes just floating, looking up at you. It would float like that, see? And I would bang on the glass, bang, bang, you know, and it would sort of blink. And once in a while it would go... I'd say, bang, bang, hey, let's hear it again. It would float up and down. It was a sea cow. Can you imagine having a neighbor who's got a... Don't ask me what Thurston did with a sea cow. <laughs> yeah, he had a sea cow in his garage. Now, I've known many guys who drove sea cows, but they called them their family car. 
But this was a real sea cow, floating sea. And I remember after we found out it was a sea cow, I came home and I said to my mother, Hey, Ma. And she says, Yeah. I said, You know what's in the garage? And she'd say, What? I said, A sea cow. And she turns and she says, Will you stop lying? I said, No, Ma, there's a sea cow in the garage over there. And five minutes later, I'm in the john and I've got a bar of palm olive in my mouth. Oh, yeah. You know, some nights when I wake up, it's terrible. You know what that'll do? How many of you have had a bar of soap stuffed in your mouth when you lied? Right, hey. <laughs> you watch him carefully. He's been blowing bubbles all night. <laughs> I, I wonder, you know, seriously, sometimes at 3 o'clock in the morning, I wake up. It's terrible. I'll wake up at 3 in the morning, see, and I said, there's a funny taste and I'm tasting life, boy. It still remains, see? Well, all right, we had the sea cow, but the camel every day. Now, I used to take my lunch to school. Now, you know, there's a whole mystique about taking lunch to school when you're a kid. For one thing, the rich kids eat in the cafeteria. And you're always a little bug because you got this bag, see? You bring this bag, and your mother has gotten the idea somewhere along the line that what you like is cream cheese and jelly sandwiches. <laughs> yeah, there's a mystique or a myth among mothers that all kids like this junk, you know. You know, and, and so, you know, I, I take this doggone bag every day, and, and what I would do every day also, I was given lunch, I was given money to take the bus. And instead... Me and Schwartz and Flick and Bruno would take our money, see, we'd wait for the bus, and the instant the bus would go by, you got this? To this day, my mother doesn't know I did this. So don't let her know, you know. <laughs> so the bus would go by, and Schwartz and Flick and Bruno and myself would start hitchhiking. <laughs> We're going to save the dime, see? And so we would get to school two hours late, <laughs> you know, and, and, and we'd arrive, but we got the dime. So every lunch hour, this is what would happen. Schwartz and Flick and Bruno and I would head for the Red Rooster, which was the local ice cream joint, you know, the high school hangout. We'd go down and I'd buy myself this gigantic triple split ice cream cone. I remember one of my special favorites was pineapple, strawberry, and chocolate. Ugh. How I like that, I don't know. But I would start at the tops and all the way around... And I finished this monster that weighed four pounds, and I still got the bag of sandwiches. You got that, see? Well, you only got a, you only got a certain amount of capacity. Now, my mother would put in two sandwiches every day, see? And one Twinkie. That was for me being a good boy, see? How many of you have ever gone on a kick like that? Oh, boy, I'll tell you, I went on a Twinkie kick one time that didn't stop. I, you know what Twinkies are, these little things with the goo stuff in them, you know? I used to take the Twinkie and I'd squeeze it. And, you know, I had all kinds of tricky ways of eating Twinkies. All right, so I'd eat the ice cream cone, I'd eat the Twinkie, and now I got two sandwiches. Well, now, you know, kids are funny about their mothers, you know? Uh, they, they have a peculiar sense of... Uh, I guess the word is conscience and fear that any day now they're going to die. 
You know that feeling when you're a little kid that your mother's not going to, she's going to die, see? And so somehow that's associated with the sandwiches. And that you shouldn't really throw it away because your mother made it. You just can't see yourself throwing the sandwiches away, see? So I used to take my sandwiches and I would put them, I had this little leatherette bag with my books, and I, I, would, I would hide them in that bag every day, and I'd bring them home. Well, you know, after a while, you get to accumulating sandwiches. Oh, yeah, I used to come in, see, and I just couldn't get myself, one, I couldn't eat them, because I hated them, and two, I couldn't throw them away. So I would come in every day, and I would sit in the kitchen, my mother would say, uh, all right, uh, what do you want now? Do you want Kokomo? Do you want milk? Or uh, do you want a graham crackers or what? You know, you have this little bit after dinner, always after school. You have something to eat? Well, I would, I would have my milk, see. And she would go out and instantly I would take, now listen to this. I would take my sandwiches out and throw them behind the refrigerator. <laughs> because the refrigerator, you know, never moved, you know. It was always there. And it had this little crack behind it, you know. And I would throw them behind the refrigerator. See, then I would sit down and I'd drink my milk. Well, this must have gone on for a year and a half. Yeah, I'm telling you. And one day I came home from school, you know, and, and you get so that crime, you know, is habit forming. Yeah, you get so you do it automatically. You don't think of it, see. So every day the sandwiches go back and the back of the thing, see, because it was all connected with the dime. It was connected with hitchhiking with cheating on the money, being late to school all the time because I hitchhiked. Oh, it was a whole complex, you see. So every day I'd throw the sandwiches back there. Well, one afternoon, I came home from school. I opened the back door, you know, I walk in. The refrigerator's gone! <laughs> it's gone! There's nothing but this big, dirty place on a wall, you know, with a couple of pipes coming on. I look around, oh, what happened? The refrigerator's gone. My sandwiches. Who discovered my sandwiches? Oh, my God, I'm sunk. Now it's out. Oh, yeah. And I could see, you know, in my mind's eye secretly, like when you're doing really something rotten, you know it's rotten. And always in my mind, I always had this little image of these petrified sandwiches. A pyramid of crime. Piling up like this, see... And I come, I come home, and it's gone. This icebox, refrigerator's gone. And there's nobody in the house. I say, Ma! Ma, hey! And she's not home. <sighs> I walk around, see. And I, I've got my little leatherette bag, you know, with two sandwiches. <laughs> you know, it's terrible, see. I walk around, and there's only one thing I could think of doing, see. I open it up, and I start eating them. I figure I'm going to make up for all the rottenness, you know. I eat the sandwiches, you know, I stuck them up. You know, I've had Milky Way bars and all this all day long. Now I'm eating the two sandwiches. And by now, they're, you know, they're kind of bent over in the middle. And they're flat from in my pocket. I eat the sandwiches. Oh. And I go out, you know, and I'm, I'm playing ball. But, but, but there's this worry, see. And so I play the ball game. And I come home. And here's my mother by the sink. I walk in. She's there, see. And she doesn't say anything. 
You know, I walk through this. <laughs> I'm on. <laughs> Gee, I sure wish I had a cream cheese and jelly sandwich. Well, wow. oh my, wow. Hey, how about a cream cheese sandwich? <laughs> I look at him. She's working away there. I go in the bedroom and I put my glove away, you know, and I take off my tennis shoes. And I go in and voluntarily wash my face. I'm trying to clear up all the rottenness of the past, you know. So I go in, I wash my face, see. I come back out, I'm walking around. I says, ha, 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 ha. The icebox, the refrigerator's gone, ma. She says, yes. <laughs> what happened to it? She says, it made a noise. Started a smoke. Why? They're fixing it. <laughs> then I begin to have an image. What happened? Did that machine start sucking up my sandwiches? Was there a bonfire of old sandwiches behind it, you know? What is this, see? And I'm walking back and forth, you know, this terrible nervousness. Oh, when you have committed a crime and, and the evidence is beginning to unfold, that is the worst moment. Oh, it's terrible, see? And so, and, and you know, I've always understood, I remember a line by Sherlock Holmes. You know, you can laugh at Holmes, but there was one line where Holmes said to Watson, you know, Watson said, oh, well, by George, amazing, my dear Holmes. And Holmes said, well, there was nothing to it, Watson. Don't you realize, Watson, that a criminal always has an innate desire to confess? But as a matter of fact, many criminals caused a crime to come about for the purpose of confessing. And Holmes said, by God, I can't understand that, Holmes. Oh, oh, he says, elementary, my dear Watson. Well, now I know about that, see. I, I, at that time, I, that, that's meaningless. And here I'm walking around in the kitchen saying, ha, 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 ha. Cream cheese and jelly sandwiches, Ma. My George. And she turns to me and she says, what's the matter with you? I said, <laughs> nothing. And she says, well, what's bothering you? I said, Ma, uh, uh, <laughs> were you here when they took the refrigerator out? And she says, yes. I said, <laughs> Well, you know, there was that instantaneous hope that maybe the mice had eaten all the sandwiches. <laughs> oh, listen, we had a parade of mice in our house that didn't stop. <laughs> in fact, it got so we knew them, you know. My old man would say, there goes Fred. Hi, Fred. <laughs> yeah, we had names for him and all. He said, there goes Popeye. There was one that had a big eye, you know. So, you know, there was that instantaneous hope. I thought to myself, oh, gee, maybe the mice ate the sandwiches. And she turns to me and she says, what's bothering you? I said, well, Mom, I... Did, uh, <laughs> did the refrigerator man find anything behind... <laughs> I, 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 I lost the golf ball behind the... Uh, did the refrigerator... And she says, well, she said, 
I want you to remember one thing. I said, what? She says, we've all got our sandwiches that we throw behind the refrigerator. I said, what? I thought she'd flip their wig. I said, well, you know, Ma, I, I brought them home and I didn't know what to do with them. I, 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 you see, I, I, some people are influenced by Hamlet. I was influenced by Stanley Laurel. He was the biggest... I, 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 I. She says, well, don't worry about it. All I want to know is what you have been eating. And, you know, for years, she'd been wondering why I had these pimples all over, you know. I said, well, I, every day I have an ice cream cone and a Milky Way bar. She says, well... And she turned. She said, I just wish you had told me. I said, well, oh, how can I tell you? <laughs> and then I felt even worse. And from that time on, I ate five cream cheese and jelly sandwiches every day. <laughs> Do you know, as penitents to this day, when I walk into the Four Seasons... <laughs> When the man says, what do you have? I said, cream cheese and jelly, please. <laughs> All right, give those sandwiches a big hand. Let's hear it. <laughs> oh, uh, speaking of cream cheese, what radio station is this, gang? Let's hear it. Hit it. And where are we? Oh, speaking of cream cheese. Well, all right, see, every day now you want to get the rest of the story about the camel. <laughs> Thought I forgot, huh? Oh, no, that's part of the scene, see. Every day I would have these two sandwiches. You got the scene? And I would come home, and I would have them in my little leatherette bag. And every day I would walk down the alleyway, and I would go past this camel. He's looking at me, see. He just looks, see, his head like a big snake would follow me, see. And I got to know him. And so I used to first walk down the other side of the alley, see. Oh, away from him, see, and say, hi, camel. You're nothing but a camel, camel. You're a rotten camel. <laughs> I'm a people, camel. You're jealous. You know, that kind of stuff. And then I started to walk down the middle of the, right down the middle of the alley, see. And I would toss him sticks. You know, little things. I'd throw him an apple core, see. And you ought to see a camel catch. I'll tell you, if you think Joe Pepitone, <laughs> boy, do they go down in the dirt, you know? Camel just goes, whoop. And then he backs up, see, and his eyes are budging. He goes, ah, ah. ah. He's waiting for something else, see. Well, that camel got to know me. And so every day I'm getting closer to him. And finally, one day, I'm walking right up next to the garage door, and the camel's head comes out, sticking way out to the end of his neck, see? He's looking. He's chewing. I reach into my leatherette bag, and I pull out one cream cheese and jelly sandwich. And I go, and he goes, Bleh! And there was a brief moment, you know, we paused. And ain't every day that a camel gets a cream cheese and jelly sandwich. You know? 
I mean, bagels and locks, yeah. Cream cheese and jelly, no. And he sort of backs up. He pauses, and then he goes... That's better than that. Hey, you know, he... He goes, and this time, for the first time, instead of spitting at me, he goes, and looks back. We are now friends. You know, and I walk past, you know, I can't. <laughs> the next day, I come creeping up. Now I've already got my cream cheese and jelly sandwich out. And he sees me coming all the way down the block. See, he's looking out. His eyes are shining, you know, like twin jewels. I walk past, I throw him the jelly sandwich. Well, all right now, we have got ourselves a real rapport. <laughs> Every day, I am giving him a cream cheese and jelly sandwich. And we're getting very friendly. Well, one day, one terrible day, we had a party in school. You know one of those parties where Miss Shields brings the cake and the Miss Robinette brings the baked beans? You know, it's one of those school parties. You sit around and eat ice cream and all that jazz, you know, that kind of stuff. And it was a no-lunch day. You got the bit? And I am now coming up to the camel. I say, hi, camel. I got no sandwich, see? And the camel looks out. <sighs> you see, he's really hooked on him now, you know? <laughs> if you've ever seen a camel with a cream cheese and jelly monkey on his back, you know, he's, he's looking, see? And I say, hi, camel. Ha, 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 you know? Well, I turn around, and I am wearing my brand-new sheepskin coat. Now, I want to tell you, you know, these sheepskin coats, you know the kind, the leatherette kind with the helmet, the goggles? With the sheepskin collar, I had just gotten and My mother got it at Sears Roebuck. <laughs> Listen to that Sears Roebuck girdle creak. And, and I had the Sears Roebuck, you know, and every year when a kid in the Midwest got his new coat... That was a major moment in his life. It was supposed to last two years and then was passed on to the next brother. There are coats out there that go back to the Boer War. Yeah, you know, and every year, and I had my new coat, see, and it's, a, it's, got, it's got sheepskin lining, see, and I'm walking down, I got the corduroy pants. Boy, I'll tell you, corduroy pants. <laughs> uh, you know, one of the things that I always remember from school is the sound of a kid breaking in a new set of corduroy pants. <laughs> Have you ever heard a kid walk up to the board with his corduroy pants and they're going, ooh, 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 ooh. And you could tell the good pants because they were in the key of B-flat. You know. He's a B-flat pants man, you know. Oh, yeah, you know. And, and, oh, I, I, and another thing about corduroy pants is corduroy pants, like all good things, ripen. And after a kid has worn a set of corduroys for two seasons, it's like a compost heap. You know, you can see twigs growing out of it, you know. And, and I've got my corduroy pants on. i got my coat and everything. See, and I, I, I say, hi, camel. <laughs> you know, I turn around and all of a sudden there's an instant. You know how you sense danger? I just, it's something's wrong. And then I hear this, boom. I hear the teeth go, clank. These two gigantic set of dentures. You ought to see teeth that Camel got. I'll tell you. I hear this. Clunk, I move and I'm stuck. This Camel has got the back of my coat. 
He's got a hold of it. And I'll tell you, this is a big camel. He's got a head like, you know, like that. And I see these two eyes, and I turn around, and the camel's got my coat like that. See, I move twice, and he bites. And that's it. There's nothing but a big bite right out of my coat. I'll tell you, you know that awful moment. Don't, don't leave it alone, Carney. You know that awful moment when you have left, when you have torn something badly? That terrible moment when you've torn something as, you, as a kid? Don't mess with it, Carney. Leave it alone, man. You know that terrible moment when, you, when you've torn a new pair of pants or something? Well, here is my new coat. Now, that coat is supposed to go to my kid brother. This is an heirloom. Already it's got a chunk the size of a watermelon on it. And, 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 you know, I panic. I run into Bruner's garage, see, and I try to put a piece of wire to hook it together, see. Big bite out of it, see. Oh, frantic. Oh, my coat. What am I going to do with my coat? A damn camel. Boy, you give a camel a cream cheese and jelly sandwich and he wants to mile and give him a world. And then I am now in the kitchen, see. And the instant I'm in the kitchen, I try to walk in sideways. <laughs> My mother takes one look and she says, What's the... Let me see your coat. <laughs> I turn around. There it is, see. She says, All right, now, how did you rip your coat? How did you rip your coat? <laughs> A camel bit it. She stood up, you know, that thing when your mother pulls her gut in. She said, I told you if you ever lied to me again. Now, how did you rip that coat? A camel did it. She says, now, I will count to three. And if at the end of three, you don't tell me how you ripped that coat. You are going to get something you will never forget. <laughs> Little did I realize that I was in the midst of one of those great educational moments in life. I was learning that people don't really want truth. You know, I'm standing... <laughs> you know, for, for the first time in my life, I've been on the level. And now there I am. I'm standing there on the linoleum, you know. The sink is going. I said, "A camel bit it." No, no. She says, "All right, okay. Tell me the truth. Flick tore it. <laughs> Flick tore it." She says, "Now why didn't you tell me that in the first place?" He says, I'm not mad. See how easy that was? Says, yeah. yeah, Ma. Yeah. And she says, now, you just sit down and I'll call Flick's mother. <laughs> you know, it's worse and worse. <laughs> and ten seconds later, she's on the phone. She says, hello, Mrs. Flickinger. She says, you know that I don't often say things about what the kids do. 
But, <laughs> Ma, please, Ma, don't say. She says, don't worry. She says, Mrs. Flickinger will understand. Don't worry. She says, Jack tore Jean's coat. His new sheepskin, yes. All right, I'll wait. <laughs> and I hear coming out of the phone, I hear this voice, don't you lie to me! And I could see Flick, you know. I could see Flick in the kitchen. <laughs> and there's this long pause, and then I hear this voice get on the phone, you know, and I hear her say, he just said he did it, yes. <laughs> and my mother says, well, I just, just, I wanted to just see if Jeannie was lying, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm standing in the corner, you know, over there. She says, okay, no, no, don't do anything. It's all right. It's just his new coat. <laughs> yes, it's just the only one he's had for 19 years, yeah. <laughs> yes, we were expecting it to last until the 21st century. Yes, it's all right, though. <laughs> no, it's okay. Okay, all right. All right, just don't, don't be too tough on him. Yeah, okay. She hangs up the phone. She comes back and she says, now, you see... There was nothing to it. Yes, Ma. Nothing to it. Nothing to it. And that night... Oh, yeah, listen. Being a criminal is bad enough. But getting away with it is worse. Oh, I'll tell you, that night I'm lying in a sack, you know, and I'm tossing. <laughs> And you know, the, the, the coat, that rotten coat is hanging in the closet. I'm tossing. <laughs> you know, I could see Flick. I could see the next day, it's recess. I could see Flick, you know, advancing through this crowd. See? Well, all right. The next day dawns bright and early. You know that terrible feeling that uh, boys, I think, know this far more than girls. It's the... Creeping retribution. It's the sense of getting, of going to get beaten up today. You know, that feeling, either that or you're going to have to fight to the last minute, you know. So all the way through, I'm dragging breakfast, you know, and my mother's saying, what's the matter, aren't you feeling well? She yeah. I am now in school. Flick is up near the front, see. And, and all the kids in my room are alphabetically arranged. I wonder how many kids never made it because they were in the S's. And the Y's and the Z's, you know. That crowd, yeah, there's never been a president whose name started with Y. Or Z or W, you know. And you sit way in the back, your little kid. I, I remember this crowd, this great horde. And almost all the kids, by the way, couldn't see the board in the back. All we'd see is this, this, this forest of waving hands. Incidentally, I wonder how many smart guys in this crowd are automatic hand wavers. <laughs> Did you ever have that terrible sense of hate for the kid in your room? There's always this smart kid that's always going like this, me, you know. You know, like this, hey, me, 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 me. And you're sitting back there, you know. Not me, don't call me. <laughs> you know. You're sitting there, you've faked it all of your life, you know. And you've made it all the way up to the sixth grade and haven't answered a question yet. 
You know, not mean you've got camouflage going, your eyeballs are spinning, you know. You're sitting there. Well, all right, that day, it is now recess time, see? And I'm scared, you know, oh, boy, flick. And sure enough, here's this crowd, and I'm way over here with a bunch of kids. Now, here's a bunch of kids over here, and there's a big mob, and I see Flick in the crowd, see? And he's looking around. He's looking around, see? And I'm standing over here. Well, you know, you can't chicken out. You know, I had a reputation. You know, I gave as much as I got, you know. I wasn't... Oh, yeah. I'm wiry, I'll tell you, see? And so I'm standing over there. I said, well, all right. Okay. Okay, if Flick wants to have it out, all right. We'll have it out, see? Okay. So I'm standing over there by Schwartz, you know. I'm pretending I'm talking. And all of a sudden, Flick walks up. He says, hey, Shepard. Shepard! I turn. I say, yeah? There's this moment of silence. It's a walk down. He looks me in the eye and he says, why did you have to tell her? I said, tell her what? He says, why did you have to tell her I tore your coat? And I says, well, you did. <laughs> he says, well, why did you have to tell her? <laughs> and now I believe he did, see? I says, because you tore it, and I'm not going to take blame for something you did. And he says, all right. And we had the bloodiest fight you ever saw. Just fighting it out, yelling and hollering until finally Miss Shields pulls us apart. And she says, all right, apologize. I says, well, he did it. And he says, it was my fault, Miss Shields. I said, you're damn right it was your fault. You tore my coat. My new coat. And Miss Shields says, did you tear his coat? He says, yeah. <laughs> well, do you know to this day there is that myth in my family? That even to this day, my mother thinks one of the funniest things I ever told her is the time when I was a kid and I, th I thought up this fantastic lie about the camel biting my coat. And so even to this day, I'll call my mother, see, and this is, this is our little family joke. You know, every family's got one. I call her on the phone, see, and I say, hey, Mom, how are you? She's back in Hammond, Indiana. She says, oh, hello, Gene, how are you? I say, okay, Ma, how are you? She says, any camels bite your coats lately? <laughs> and every time I say, but Ma, a camel really did bite my coat. And she says, oh, you always were such a funny kid. <laughs> I said, but Ma, camel bit my coat. And so we've carried this on for years. And to this day, see, she believes that a camel bit my coat. And I learned something very strongly that time about truth. I learned something about camels, too. And I'll never forget, you want to hear what happened to the sea cow? All right, see, he was part of the camel world. And every day when, when, the, when the camel is out to lunch, or the camel was working, the camel would disappear for weeks on end. I guess he was working in the act or something. He'd go, see, that me and Flick and Bruner would go around the back of the house 
and there was this little dirty window. You know how they have little dirty windows in the garages? And you can see a couple of paint cans, you know, and with the paint brushes sticking out. And we would tap on the window. We'd tap on it. And we'd see this great big pool in there. Just heaving. We had a pool that just sort of heaved like that. And we'd tap on the window again, you know, this little short, like, you know, like that. It got him, you see. It was something in the sound. We'd go... And all of a sudden, you'd see this... You'd see the water part in the beer cans. Yeah, and you'd see the, the cigar butts. And you'd see the orange peelings come down off of his head. And he would look. Boy, there is nothing sadder than the eyes of a sea cow. It's eerie, especially when you see it in a garage in Indiana. I don't know where it is that sea cows live. What kind of land? I understand they live near icebergs, and they live down in Southern California. But wherever that sea cow lived, it was nothing like this garage. And so the sea cow would look. You'd see these two eyes. It would look, and we'd knock again, you know, like this. And the sea cow would spit little water. And, go, and once in a while it would go... And you know, they really do like, look like humans. Are you aware that the sea cow is the basis of the mermaid legends? I'm sorry, that's true. It is. That the sea cow is the creature, or the manatee, if you prefer that, is the creature that in the early days was spotted by seamen. And the first time they saw it, it has such a human-like look that they thought it was a kind of human that lived in the sea. This is actually the basis of the legend of the mermaids. And I can understand it because this sea cow always looked like it was crying. It really did. Had big sad eyes. Would look out at the sea. And, and you, could, you had a vague sense that not only was it looking at you, but it somehow understood that you were there. It wasn't like other animals, you know, that flat animal look. The sea cow kind of understood. And so we'd look, we'd knock. And it would float up and down. This went on for a whole year. And, and it was curious because the kids never talked about it. You know how, how, how there are certain things when you're a kid that you don't tell your parents it's your thing? And we would go and look at the sea cow. And once in a while we'd throw apple cores in. And the sea cow would go... Would disappear, see. And then it would float up again. And you see it's kind of chewing. It's eating an apple core. I'll bet I'm one of the very few guys who's ever fed a sea cow apple cores. It just floats up and down, see. And every day I would come in and I'd sit at home, you know, after I played with the sea cow for about an hour. And I'd come home and I'd sit there, see. And my mother would say, what, you, what did you do? I just played. We never told her about the sea cow. Except that they had this funny thing, and that was all. One afternoon, an afternoon I will never forget, because it was one of those peculiarly traumatic things, the kind of things that you could never tell an analyst, and that you could never write in a short story because it doesn't have any real meaning. One afternoon, we're all out playing ball. And the sea cow we had not played with for about two weeks. We're out in front. We're knocking out fly balls, see? 
and a big truck pulls up. It pulls up right in front of the place. See, we're watching, kind of half watching. And these guys go up the driveway, about seven of them. And all of a sudden, they come down the driveway, and they've got this great big, well, it looks like some kind of a great big plaster thing. And they're carrying it. The sea cow has died. They are carrying the sea cow out on a strange kind of stretcher. All the kids who watch it. Have you ever seen a sea cow on a stretcher? <laughs> I'll tell you, it's one of the sights you'll never forget. It just sort of lays there, you know. Yeah, our sea cow had kicked the bucket, you know. And they put it in the truck, and away they went. And here we are, out playing ball. Bruner says, gee, that was the sea cow. Flick says, ah, so what? Come on, let's get the ball game going. But we didn't play. We couldn't play. The sea cow had died. And somehow something had gone out of the neighborhood that was very important. And so later that night, I'm at home, see, and I got this, this, you know, I'm sitting there eating, and I'm worried about the sea cow. That's a weird thing, and I'm eating the, you know, I'm eating the red cabbage, and I'm sitting there. You know that feeling when you're sitting at home, and, and, and there's something wrong? I'm eating, see. My old man turns to me. He always sat on the left. You know how the family has a regular satellite way of sitting? There's, how do you establish this? I've often wondered how these little routines are established. When you were a kid, do you recall the exact way the family sat at the kitchen table when you ate? How it never changed. Your father sat at one place, your mother sat at another, and ours was like this, the old man to the left, always. My mother sat over there, I sat on the end, and my kid brother sat over here. Either that or he was under the table. <laughs> you know, it was one or the other. And, I, and, and this continual running, this, this kind of a family counterpoint all the time. Like, uh, now will you eat? Now quit playing with your food. My, my kid brother had a way of making pyramids. You know, he would make pyramids. And then once in a while he would make big pinwheels. Have you ever seen a pinwheel made out of mashed potatoes and red cabbage? And then he would take the ketchup and put it on the top, see? And once in a while he'd make phallic symbols, you know, not knowing it, see? And he's making this stuff. And that's the way we lived, see? And so we're sitting there eating, and my mother turns to me and says, What's the matter? You're not eating, Jeannie. I said, I'm not, uh, I'm not very hungry. And she says, well, what's the matter? Is there something wrong with you? Aren't you feeling well? Yeah. Yeah. And the old man, you know, he was very direct. He turns, he says, look, if something's eating, you tell us. It's okay. And immediately, you know, there's that, that myth, you know, that thing that happens in the house where the old man immediately assumes that something terrible has happened. He says, all right, now what did you do? I said, nothing, nothing. What's the matter? Nothing happened. My mother says, well, you're not eating. What's up? I says, well, the sea cow died.
My mother says, what? The what died? And my old man says, now look, we're eating. <laughs> and I said, the sea cow died, Mom. You know, Mr. Thurston's sea cow. She says, Mr. Thurston's sea cow died. And my kid brother starts to cry. <laughs> you know, kid brothers are like animals. They sense trouble. And immediately I hear, he's whimpering, you know. My mother says, shut up, will you? And I says, the sea cow died, Mom. And, you know, that first instinct of my father was to laugh. You know, that, oh, come on, a sea cow died. And, and uh, to his everlasting credit, he understood that something peculiar had happened. You know, and he says, well, that's all right. It'll be all right. I says, no, the sea cow's dead. And my mother says, oh, come on, it's going to be all right, Jeannie, it's all right. And you know that moment when you're encouraged to cry? And you find yourself, oh, it goes, ah! You know, it's coming out, ah! My mother says, look, now, now look, we'll get you another sea cow. And to the sea cows everywhere, we salute you. We'll be back next week at the same time. <laughs>